This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. We uh, have had a rather interesting and somewhat, shall we say, burdensome debate about cat licensing over the last couple of weeks. It got really hot and heavy at City Council last week about that. Now there is discussion about actually licensing cyclists. The city is looking into whether it can implement a licensing of bicycles following a heated debate over who's going to pay for the Claremont Access bike lanes. And that uh, was something that went uh, hot and heavy at City Hall last week as well. Donna Skelly is the counsel for Ward 7 up on the Central Mountain. She joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to give us some perspective on this. Good morning, Counselor. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? Great. Uh, a busy weekend today. I want to, first of all, before we get into the uh, the idea about cycling and, and licensing, let me talk to you a little bit about this uh, Claremont Access uh, project, uh, which came, of course, on the agenda late last week at City Council and uh, something that got rather heated. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I don't know. I wouldn't suggest it is rather heated. What happened is this 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 project to create a separate cycling pedestrian lane for the Claremont Mount access um, really was pushed to the to the front of the pack after the fatality, the cycling fatality. Uh, was it last year? I believe about a year and, ago. About a year ago, yes, and. Um, Rightfully so, Councillor Whitehead is saying, if it's urgent and if this would be the only really safe access for cyclists, uh, mountain access for cyclists, then let's make it a priority. Right now it sits as about 200 on the priority, the cycling priority list. So it's really jumped the queue. The City of Hamilton allocates about $2.5 million of funding for cycling lanes annually. It's part of a $50 million 20-year strategy to grow cycling in the city of Hamilton. His proposal was, if it's a priority, then make it a priority and use the $2.5 million that we allocate every year for cycling towards building that access. I think that's probably the best way to go forward with this, but this just turned into how are we going to do it. Of course, staff came back and said, Part of this this um, presentation last week was funding for um, a plan to study this particular access, and of course, it's always two hundred thousand dollars, which I find very frustrating. That every time we go to do a study in the city of Hamilton, it's two hundred thousand dollars. It doesn't matter what the study. Yeah, is, that's that's the starting 000. point now, isn't it? it? It's 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 silly because we had the same 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 suggestion a couple of months ago when. Um, Members of the Board of Health came back and said they needed $200,000 to do a study for safe injection sites. And we just pushed back and said, wait a minute here, why 200? And they came back and said, well, we can do it for 92. Well, if you can do it for 92, can you do it for 20? Can you do it for 10? I mean, it's a study. Regardless of, you know, putting that aside, if we're going to be building this access, I think it should really come from that $50 million, 20-year funding um, pot, $2.5 million annually. Let's make it a priority. Let's take the funding from there. This kind of evolved to registration. Now, it's just a suggestion, but I don't, you know, and there are pros for registering bikes and uh, licensing bikes, and there are cons. What are some of the pros? Well, first of all, if your bike is stolen, it's easier to track. That's number one. Um, I think that I, I really do believe when you have this type of formality, that people who are participating sometimes take the role a little bit more seriously. I mean, there are cyclists in the city of Hamilton who are 
next to be. I mean, they really take the rules of the road seriously. They they know what they're doing. They can uh, they follow the rules. They're very very conscientious about safety. And then there are other cyclists in the city of Hamilton. And I just noticed that I was um, I went to the Vanier Cup on Saturday, and when I was driving down Main Street, I saw cyclists heading towards me on the street and on the sidewalk, no helmet, no you know no reflective gear. I mean, there are also pockets of people who don't respect the rules of the road. If we're going to be encouraging more cyclists, then we have to recognize that there is a safety component as well. We have more cars on the road. People aren't yet that accustomed to seeing a cyclist uh, whip by. We have increased, <clears throat> excuse me, fines for, psych- for drivers who don't respect cyclists. For example, there's something called dooring. If you intentionally leave the car door open and a cyclist happens to run into it, there's a, there's a hefty fine involved. The same thing goes with not giving, um, leaving a meter when you're passing a cyclist who isn't, um, uh, who you have to pass because the person isn't, isn't cycling fast enough. If you don't leave a meter, there's about a hundred, I think a hundred and ten dollar fine for the, for the driver. So when we see and we encourage more cyclists, I think it's important that we also realize that that means that you've got more cars, more cyclists on the road. The safety component has to be addressed. And I think that this would just bring that forward. Some of the cons, while well, of course the cost, people argue that if you impose a fee, there's a cost associated with it. It's deterring cyclists. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to see, you know, that. But I don't think a ten or fifteen or twenty dollar um, licensing fee is is necessarily going to be a deterrent. I think it could be on the bike, not necessarily the cyclists themselves. I think that that's it's it's a discussion and a debate that's occurring right around the world. But as we encourage more cyclists, as we allocate more funding for increasing lanes for cyclists, then I think we have to recognize that we're going to have to be a little bit more serious about sharing the road and, and look at, at regulations. Some are just going to look at this as a tax grab, though. I know. It's not going to generate a lot of money. I don't... I don't th- it's I'm it's not certainly not going to pay for the installation of a bike lane. Oh, gosh, no. I mean, it won't. That that was never my intent. I think that what uh, Councillor Whitehead suggested initially is uh, incorporate the Claremont access within the 20-year uh, cycling strategy and, and find the funds there. I think that that's far more valid of an argument. It's not... It You, you can call it a tax grab. I'm, I'm more serious. I think it's it's more of a safety issue. We're seeing... I, I know in Ottawa recently, they just opened up a bike lane and within two... I think it was within a week they had two very serious accidents, cyclist accidents. So, you know, we're as we go forward with sharing the road, we have to recognize that you're talking about a bicycle and a car, and somebody can get hurt, and there could be a fatality. So let's really look at if you want to have bikes on the Claremont Access, and right now we don't have that that physical separation between a bike lane. In fact, we don't have a bike lane, but between a, a cyclist and a uh, and a driver. If we're going to be doing this, then we have to look at keeping people safe. And and, and that means taking it more seriously. And if a, a 10 or $20 fee for a license is going to help make everyone safer, make the road safer for all, then I don't see it, why we would push back so, so, so harshly. And, and, you know, you have a very organized, very vocal cycling community, and, and good for them. But they're very loud on social media. And they don't want the registration fee, for the most part, that's what I'm seeing. 
But I think that you have to recognize if you want to be treated the same as a car, you have to play by the same rules. And that means licensing a vehicle that is on the road. Any other vehicle that's on the road has to be licensed. I think that um, it's not unfair or unreasonable to to at least look into licensing cyclists. I, I'm having problems here, though, Donna, trying to draw this connection between actually paying for a license and, and increased road safety. Uh, I, I mean, I could make the argument, I'm not trying to be flippant here, that you have to be licensed to drive a motorized vehicle on the roads here, too, but I don't think it's doing a whole lot for safety. Uh, and cyclists, uh, I, I would put it into the same category. I mean, you know, having to pay a license doesn't mean that they're still not going to run stop signs, et cetera. And, and as one of your fellow colleagues, uh, Council Marula, suggested, it's almost unenforceable to have this anyway. So why even bother? Well, it, 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 it certainly would give police a little bit better um, idea of who, is, who, who the cyclist was. If there's a license on the back, you could at least track and look and find out what what the bike was. I mean, we don't have any way of of identifying the cyclist or the or the bike itself. Um, but again, it's and then running through red lights, you certainly could identify the, the the bicycle. So that argument, I think, is set aside. But I think it's more of, of um, a culture. I, I don't believe there are professional cyclists, not professional, but there are cyclists that take it very seriously. As I said, they understand the rules of the road. And they're very, very, very conscientious about safety. And then you have, I'd say, almost the vast majority who aren't. If you have to have um, a license, I do believe we can start pushing and saying you have to start um, behaving properly. You cannot ride on. I know the rules say right now you can't cycle on a, on a, a sidewalk, but I see it all the time. I see cyclists. I was coming down the Jolly Cut on Friday heading to work, and there was a, a gentleman on a, um, a motorized bicycle on the Jolly Cut. And he, in fact, I was right behind him, and I, I intentionally looked at the speedometer. He was going about 15 kilometers an hour, and I had to slam on my brakes as soon as I came up in the lane, and he was on the middle of the lane. So, if you know, you have to be very, you have to recognize that there's a safety component using. These, these accesses, using all of the roads in the city of Hamilton. Asking for a cyclist to have a registration fee, I think, is, is just a way of saying, look, there's a rule. These are, there are rules that have to be applied. If you're going to, to use our rules, our, our roads, then you have to follow these rules. You have to have your uh, bicycle licensed, and you have to obey the rules. I just think that there's a, a sense of um, safety that goes along with Acquiring the license itself, but those rules. And perhaps are, I'm wrong. But well, those those rules are in place now, Donna. I mean, you know that you need to stop and you need to f- obey all the rules of the Highway Traffic Act and when you're driving. And and you're right. There's a component. I don't know what the percentage is, but there's a component of people that disobey. And I don't know that paying a ten dollar or fifteen dollar license fee is going to change their minds about that. You know, it might be interesting to see uh, to to do a comparison with boat licensing. Because up until a few years ago, you weren't required to, to have a boat license when you were on the roads. And I'm just wondering if people who had to have that license actually learned the rules for the first time. And many people have operated uh, boats on any Ontario lake or river uh, without a license until recently. And have they? Have, is there any correlation whatsoever between um, boating fatalities, boating accidents, and, and the new uh, license that was required a few years ago? 
How far do you go if you're going to? And again, we're, I want to be clear to our listeners: this is this is just a discussion at this stage. This is not something council is going to vote on anytime soon. No, and but, and and may I, if I may, Councillor Pearson rightfully said, "Look, every time we send staff back to do a report, it costs them time. It costs taxpayers money." That's when we we said, "Okay, look, you're right," because I've seen the two hundred thousand dollars studies every time we ask for a study. So they're just looking at what has been done in Toronto and whether or not we're even even um, permitted to under the um, you know Ontario legislation to impose any sort of a, a license in the city of Hamilton. We may not. It may be out of our hands and end of discussion. And if it is, we'll move on. But um, uh, so this is just what what's happening, and just give us a snapshot. How far are you willing to go with this? I mean, if you've got a family with three kids and two parents, for instance, uh, does that mean five licenses? I mean, uh, you know, every, every little no, five- and six-year-old kid that. is going to be riding their bike around, to, uh, sometimes on city streets. Do they have to be licensed, or would they have to be? First of all, it wouldn't be the person. I would suggest the bike. And, and you know, in other, I've been looking at other jurisdictions, and it's usually for over 18 I don't know if I'd want my nine-year-old going down the Claremont Access on a, on a bicycle anyway. Um, no, but, but I mean, you're using that as an example, but it could also mm-hmm. be, be East 14th Street. I mean, you know, they're still on the street. Yeah, no, I don't think kids uh, necessarily uh, should. Although, if you lose your bike and you can get your bike back, it would be kind of nice to, you know, if that's one way of tracking stolen bicycles, that would be, um, you know, certainly an advantage. We all had them when we were kids. Uh, how many municipalities across Ontario had to have a little bike license? I think it was $2 a year or something like that. But we had the little plastic card and you had to have it on the back of your bike or you couldn't go on the road. So it's not something that's new. It was around, you know, many, many, many years ago. Um, is it a tax grab? Not, that's not the intent. Certainly not my intent. My intent is how do we elevate the, um, the seriousness of cycling on some roads in the city of Hamilton. You know, if you're going on one of the the, the side streets in a, in a neighborhood, that's one thing. But when you're heading down the Claremont Access or the Jolly Cut or on a major route, even Main and King Streets, it can be pretty um, congested and a very dangerous route for a cyclist. If this doesn't elevate the safety of, of a cyclist, then we'll, we'll put it aside. But... We, we have to start recognizing that these are major roads. There are a lot of vehicles on these roads, and if we're going to be sharing them more and more with cyclists, then I think we all have to look at how to make it safer and how to make sure that both the driver is respectful of the cyclist and that the cyclist is respectful of the driver and the rules of the road. The other thing it may possibly do, you'll hear uh, often drivers say, look, they don't pay taxes. They haven't paid for the road, and they're not as respectful of the cyclist. If you throw in a, in a licensing fee, well, that argument is negated. So they do, you know, that money would be going towards, um, you know, maintenance of the road, et cetera. I got about forty seconds here. Is this the thin edge of the wedge? I mean, where do you draw the line? Do, you, do we start licensing scooters now too, because they're on the road sometimes? Motorized bikes. I mean, there's you know, there's a number of different things that uh, that, that people scooters, are using these days the for transportation. Not the scooters should not be on the road. Yeah, but they I mean, are. They really shouldn't be. I know, and that is how many times I've seen it, and I've reported on people. It's funny. I think it was afterwards, after we had this debate, I saw it wasn't a scooter, but it was a motorized bicycle that had been hit by a car, and it was on the side of the road. The guy was standing, but I just thought, thank goodness he wasn't, you know, hurt seriously hurt, but. Um, scooters 
that's a you know that that's a that's a discussion for another day. But you have to recognize people can get hurt and have been hurt, and we have to figure out where they should be and shouldn't be in the winter time when their sidewalks aren't plowed. They're on the road, and you're not necessarily thinking about a scooter on the road, but there's a person on a scooter, and and it can be a very dangerous um, decision for the person on the scooter to take to go on the road. So, you know, we should be looking at that. Avoiding it is not is not the thing to do, but we should really be addressing it. But it's also about education. Um, the two-way bike lanes on, on um, Cannon Street can be uh, shocking for drivers who aren't used to it and are forgetting that they're coming in both directions when they go to make a left turn. And then all of a sudden there's a cyclist coming down. They have the, access, they have the right-of-way, but... You're not aware of that if you don't use that road very often. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. There has been discussion at Hamilton City Hall for quite some time now about what to do with our aging uh, facilities. These are the city-owned facilities. I mean, you've got your arenas like, you know, the Dave Anderchuk Arena over on the Supplemental Mountain on the Hester Street and, and others around town. But let's face it, the big one, the big daddy that everybody's concerned about is First Ontario Centre, formerly known, the arena formerly known as... Uh, of course, Cops Coliseum. Uh, it's uh, it's old. It's uh, not state of the art anymore. And uh, so, what they did, uh, we ta- detailed this for you, of course, on the program some months ago now, is uh, through uh, Jasper Kajavsky, a local lawyer. Uh, they have uh, basically got private sector to kick in money for a study. Well, that study's been done, uh, and it talks about some possibilities and some solutions here about what we're going to do. And this is very pivotal. Because obviously something needs to be done. The status quo is implementing the status quo. I, I really don't think is a viable option at this stage. Now, we don't have all the details of what's in the report right now because uh, city staff, I guess, are going to be going through this over the next little while. But I do want to bring Glenn Norton into the conversation. Glenn is the manager of Urban Renewal for the city of Hamilton. And uh, he joins us on the Bill Keller Show to try to give us some perspective on this. Good morning, Glenn. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm very good, Bill. Good. Uh, have you seen the report yet? I have. Okay. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about, maybe in the way of background, exactly how this came about. I got an, a tweet from somebody just a little while ago, said just a total wax, a lot, you know, loss of taxpayers' money. This didn't cost the taxpayers any money, did it? it the only cost the taxpayers was the 50000 yeah. that was paid to, uh, to Jasper's company. So Jasper's task, part of it, was to go out and raise um, private sector funds, which he did. The uh, you know approximately two hundred and forty thousand. Well, that's that's not a bad investment of fifty well, grand if you get two forty as a return. That's that's a great investment, and we would have had to pay that. This is a very detailed, thorough study of every single component, structural, physical, of the Cops Coliseum, a thirty-one-year-old building. Let's uh, and and by the way, the people that did this have quite the reputation within that industry. I'm told. Oh, absolutely. This is one of the top firms in the world. And, and you know, they've, they've looked at other facilities in other parts of the world. This is not just a, a bunch of local guys that said, let's have a look at the arena here in Hamilton. Uh, so they're, they're doing comparisons, et cetera. What, what are the options as you see them right now, Glenn? And this is obviously going to be a political decision at some point down the future, but staff input is going to be critical here. Yeah, and staff and, and citizen and, and user input will all be critical to help council make uh, what could be a very difficult decision, um, given you know the status of the um, financial needs of the city for infrastructure and other things. So you know, in terms of options, there's um, there's not really a do nothing option, right? There's it's a 31 year old building. You have to do something to upgrade. Things do wear down. So the, the do nothing still has a cost to it, but. 
in, in all likelihood, the, the next two are two levels of upgrade. One is to say, um, how can we increase the fan experience for the existing uh, users, primarily Bulldogs and then the um, concerts and events like that? So what can you do without spending a whole lot of money to improve that? And then what if you wanted to take it to the ultimate, to the, to the level that you would need if you wanted an NHL standard um, event in there? So that's what you're going to see in the report. What council will see is those cost options. Is there a possibility, Glenn, and, and I, I know we're blue-skying here to a certain extent, uh, to actually renovate that to bring it to NHL standards, or is it, is it going to be more cost-efficient to just knock it down and build a brand-new one if that were to be council's decision? Right. So there is an option put in there to do that, and, and there is at a high level a number given, uh, renovate versus um, build new, and I'll, I'll keep that um, confidential if you don't mind. No, I, I, I get that at this point, yeah. that is. But I'm, I'm hearkening back... Uh, for instance, when Jim Balsley tried to to get the team out of Phoenix and bring them here some years ago, and and I had Mr. Balsley on the show, and he outlined some some pretty extravagant plans as to what he wanted to do, including with the arena, and and you probably remember there was a prototype that he actually had drawings done for, and it, it, he talked the the word he used was renovate, but when you looked at what he was you know, the scope of the work there, Glenn, essentially he was just going to tear the guts of this whole thing out and just kind of rebuild around it, uh, so, and that's going to cost a ton of money. That, that's correct. And, and, of course, his design, you know, is probably a little more extravagant than what is the, the bare minimum required to get to the standards. But you're right in that we need to look at it in the context of the whole future purpose of that site. You know, is, is it the right uh, location for that venue? Is that the right venue for the city? Or, uh, you know, could it be split into two venues, one that addresses the needs for our, um, our pro hockey team, which is, um, you know, a smaller venue? and a different venue that addresses the need for performance space. Don't know. All those things still remain uh, to be looked at and would be another phase of this uh, study if Council so directs us to move forward. For now, the, the immediate task was to get in front of them the cost. Strictly, what is the condition of this thing and what are the costs involved? We should also mention that the dynamics have changed over the last number of years. I mean, there was a time... Uh, when you and I were young, Glenn, uh, when, when federal and provincial governments used to kick in a fair bit of money for some of these projects, that's not likely to happen. As a matter of fact, I don't think it's happened for years and years, and not just for Hamilton, but for any city. Yeah, and, and so what the f- correct financial model will be is, is the next step after that, right? So the, in all likelihood, there's some um, need or some availability of a public-private partnership here, but that's another step as well down the road. And we're not trying to get ahead of ourselves. Um, once our facility staff finish reviewing the report to, agree, to determine do they agree with the things that are recommended and the costs and so on, then we can get it in front of council and say, council, what else would you like us to do? We, we think that one thing um, we would want is a, is a comprehensive review of the, the role of uh, First Ontario Centre in the downtown in terms of a full entertainment and sports precinct. What else could it uh, spawn? What else could be built around it should something else be built around it? Let me ask you about that, because I, I understand what some people's vision is here, that they like to see this to become, as you've, as you've uh, characterized it, an entertainment district with restaurants and, th- and things of this nature. Uh, Glenn, I heard the same talk when they built Cops Coliseum back in the day, over 30-odd years ago now. It never happened. Why not? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know if it's um, you know just timing in terms of critical mass of the population of the city at the time, the population of the city uh, living downtown and working downtown. 
are we in a different position now? Um, not sure. I think it's still a question worth uh, looking at 30 years later to say what is different and would we reach a different conclusion than we reached 30 years ago. And, and in fairness, I mean, th- 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 that council probably didn't have the same economic development tools or maybe even the foresight and the, and, and the work ethic to make it happen. I mean, th- th- things have gone pretty well, and, and a lot of that is because of what this council and past councils have certainly done to kind of lay the groundwork uh, for some of that, that, that growth to happen. Is there still an opportunity as you look around the area around that arena right now, Glenn, where you can see growth? I mean, when the arena was built, uh, you know, there was an empty lot around there. That's become a federal building right now, so there's not a whole lot going to happen with that property. Where do you see, uh, without, without getting into specifics about mm. land use and costs and everything like that, where do you see that sort of growth even taking place? Yeah, so there still are um, potential properties in the area, and, and I, I hesitate to sort of speculate on naming them at all, uh, Bill, because it sort of drives a speculation yeah. investment market, which isn't um, healthy. But there certainly is area around there. And if you look at what has changed uh, in the downtown just in the last couple of years, you've got two brand-new hotels within, you know, a block of um, the First Ontario Centre. You've got numerous new restaurants. Right? You've got a renovated uh, Sheraton Hotel. You've got a rejuvenated Jackson Square. So there are things that are different than they were even just 10 years ago, and that's some of the things we have to look at when we think about what would a sports and entertainment precinct look like? What would it do for the downtown? What would it do for the city? What are the potential uh, tax revenue um, uplifts here? What about the money aspect of this right now? We we all know about the challenges the city is facing right now financially, infrastructure deficits, a, a number of different things that that are coming into play here. Uh, when you look at what needs to be done here and what this report is probably going to address, and you guys, as I say, will will they'll reveal the cost numbers to us in, in due course, I guess. Right. But is this even doable? Uh, I mean, given the city's financial situation right now, is this just something that's on a wish list, or this is something that's going to be moved on to a priority list? Is that I can't tell you. I, again, I don't want to um, sort of preposition council's decision on this. Uh, right now, there is a, a need to do something just because of the age of the building, but in terms of how much we spend and how far we, we take it, uh, other than basic uh, repairs, it is still to be determined. Part of it, as, exactly as you say, is what is the economic payback for doing something? You know, where does it, you know, bring in new visitors to the city in terms of the dollars they're going to spend in hotels and restaurants and so on? Where does it uh, land in terms of in improving the fan experience for the sports tenants we have there, for our citizens in terms of how they use and how they enjoy their city? Lots of factors that will go into the um, report and the, for consideration of council to determine whether, in fact, this will be a priority or it will be something that stays on the back burner until such time as uh, our economy uh, is, is a little different than it is right now. As the manager of Urban Renewal for the City of Hamilton, you've had some pretty good successes in downtown with some projects there. Uh, and, and you've outlined some of them at the hotels, but there have been some other things that have happened, too, uh, from a, a commercial standpoint. Uh, but for, to, for the city to move to the next level... Uh, I mean, this is your wheelhouse. This is this is what you do, is urban renewal. Uh, would you characterize the redevelopment or whatever the council is going to decide to do of this arena to be a nice thing? It would be kind of neat if it would happen, or is it essential for you to continue the economic development for downtown and the renewal? Yeah, well, tough question to answer, um, Bill. I, I, I couldn't say that it's essential because, as as you've just said, we've had so many good successes already, right, without the change. Um 
what has been essential is getting more people uh, living downtown, and that's certainly well underway with over 2,000 uh, rental and condominium units uh, either completed or under construction. Um, the uh, office space is filling up, so the vacancy rate is going down. As I say, restaurants and other types of businesses are coming back downtown. So that is happening without the upgraded First Ontario Centre. What could a new and expanded facility um, do? Um, a good question, but it's not something we have yet uh, landed at this You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. It's uh, time for the Chiefs Down Hall. Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert, uh, as is his custom every month, is uh, in studio with us. Uh, good morning. Good to have you with us again. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having us. Uh, and we'll, by the way, open up the phone lines in just a few minutes here for your phone calls and your questions and comments for the Chief of Police about law and order in our town, about uh, any number of different things, traffic issues, whatever the case might be, public safety. Uh, 905-645-3221 is our number. 905-645-3221. If you're on a cell phone, that's toll-free, star 9900. And, uh, of course, you can reach us on email, bkelly at 900chml.com, and on Twitter at chmailbillkelly. We'll go to your questions, your comments uh, for the chief in uh, just a couple of minutes. A uh, number of things I want to talk to you about. It says we're heading into the uh, Christmas season pretty so- shortly, and I want to get into some of the uh, the ramped-up uh, patrols that will be going on. But before we do that... Uh, we had uh, Lloyd Ferguson, the chair of the Police Services Board, on the program last week uh, about a number of issues, and I know that there, there have been some public consultations about the uh, the new policy uh, that uh, the Ministry of, uh, of course, of the Attorney General has set up uh, here for the province of Ontario, and it has to do with, uh, well, let's get into phraseology here. Some people call them street checks, other people call it carding. Uh, by the way, I guess on that point, I get it's almost a semantics lesson here. Are we talking about the same thing? Actually, the way that the regulation was set up, it's called the collection of information in certain circumstances, prohibitions. Now, that's a bit of a, a mouthful for an act, uh, but that really what it's about. It's about the collection of information. So I think the underlying uh, tension that the ministry had to deal with was uh, with community-based policing, uh, the public still expects us to interact, and we do, with the public, whether it's uh, getting witnesses at a scene, um, just talking on the street. So talking to people is not prohibited. The collection of information, that's where they have provided restrictions. And of course, there's a whole set of circumstances where you can't. There's a whole set of circumstances where you can. And when you do, and under what circumstances do you provide or receipt, all those type of things. So it's, it's a rather complex piece of uh, legislation, the regulation itself. But really, they're, they're trying to balance those two things. Let me ask you the question they asked uh, Councillor Ferguson, uh, Chief Board, Police Chief board because it's it's something that i'm getting variations on this theme because because i do make a differentiation between uh street checks and and carding as as some people are using the phrase i mean somebody if if an officer walks up to me and says hey bill what are you doing down at gage park it's uh, three o'clock in the morning that's a conversation but at some point at some point when that officer decides i want to get information what prompts them to make that next move instead of just a conversation well have a good night or everything's fine or well okay i'm not crazy about that to actually say no i need to get your name i want to get information from you because that seems to be the most contentious element correct and and we are allowed to uh, collect 
that information for the purposes of an investigation, which we always have been. And um, But it's what you use that for, what's going to happen. The difference now is, of course, we will provide you a receipt if we've, in fact, collected that information. And it could be for investigation. It could just be for um, you may have an outstanding complaint in the area. And so you've got this, again, pressure from both sides. Uh, people say, well, you know, I'm not – we're seeing people hanging around late in the morning – we don't think that's the usual thing. Officers, we want you to check on that. So then what we do, we may want to find out who's in the area at 3 a.m., as you say, on the street. If, in fact, we do that and there's um, no criminal arrest, then, of course, we would have to provide you with a receipt to that effect. Let's let's talk about the, the recommendations and the, and the regulations here. And as, as we talked about, I know Toronto uh, Police Services is moving on this as well. I guess every community has to at some point or another. This This new regime that's going to be put in place here comes into uh, effect, I understand, the 1st of uh, January 2017? That's correct. And the other big piece here, this is a province-wide regulation. Part of the issue from the community was it's different, or it was, it was different in any community you go to, so they wanted it standardized. That's, in fact, what the ministry has done, is standardize it through regulation, and then how it's collected in Windsor or London or uh, Caps Casing or wherever it might be is done in a similar fashion. The retention periods are governed by the government as well through that regulation. So they looked at the whole thing and said, this is how we're going to do it standard across Ontario. So how much wiggle room, how much leeway does each police service have on this? Uh, not a terrible amount because it's in statute. So if they say you will retain for five years, you may have an argument that says, well, we want to eliminated totally. You may have a counter-argument from whoever says keep it seven years. Well, the government has determined it's five years, five years, it's five years. And then, of course, I mean, you'd have to look at the reg itself because it's quite complicated. How long, under what circumstances, who has access. But they have looked at all those things, so we have to comply with the Act. All right, we're getting into the same discussion points, I think, that we did when uh, closed-circuit cameras were being installed some years ago, and I know you were on board for that discussion and debate as well. Uh, and there's always this balance that we're trying to find here between uh, individual rights and, and, and obviously with the people that are in police services trying to do their jobs. Uh, the major thing I hear about this idea about collecting information is, well, who's going to see it? How long are these guys going to keep it? What are they going to do with it? Yeah, and that's all been prescribed in the Act as well. Under what conditions can it be released? Uh, it's tracked when it is released. There's an annual report now required that's going to be available online. These are all things that were prescribed through the Act. It's really not where the discussion has taken place in terms of public awareness on this piece. And quite frankly, I've had discussions with the ministry around this to say, um, you need to come out on this ministry because when police services are talking about it, it sounds a certain way. But it's a ministry-directed regulation. So they need to say, here's the standards, here's the requirements, here's what we have constructed, and tell the public about that. In the interim, of course, we're doing it because we still want the public to know what's happening. There are some people who still think that, though, well, this is you, or not meaning you, but I mean Hamilton Police Service, crafting these regulations. In other words, this is how we're going to do it. It sounds to me as if this is almost being taken out of your hands now. Well, because it is a statute, because it's a regulation, it has. Now, what the board is required to do is make their policy congruent with the regulation. And, of course, my policy, the chief's policy, has to be congruent with the board's policy. Well, don't you just rewrite the, the, the provincial policy then? Because it's just essentially what it's going to be, isn't it? Well, there's, there's a lot of congruence. And as I talk about timelines, thresholds, under what requirements, it'll look very similar because, of course, it's got to mirror the statute. So in terms of your wiggle room, you still have to comply with the statute. You can't work outside what the statute says. Who is going to see this information that's being collected? 
Uh, well, it could be used by investigators. It could be used under other circumstances, um, but the requirement has to be set before that information can be accessed. And then the retention periods are governed, all that. So um, it's not, I think the balance in terms of freedom of information is it's not available publicly. It's not available um, to just the general population, even within policing. It has to be for a specific purpose. Would people have to make a request to see this? I mean, you know, hey, I want to see the file on John Doe. So, an, so an, you may you may make a query. Get an a investigating officer would actually Correct. go to whom to make, to get that permission. Well, we'll have it delegated down to um, a person who can provide that authority. But okay. fundamentally, the way the act reads, it's my authority. Okay. Uh, where at, at, at this point here, when we start talking about this information and where where it's being gathered, and the implementation of it here, there's there's always a concern here about uh, public safety from the other side. And I want to talk to you about that for just a second. Uh, and again, I asked Councillor Ferguson about this, and he says, well, you know, I, I, it doesn't have anything to do with the day-to-day operation of the police service. That's obviously your wheelhouse. Uh, we've looked at statistics, Chief, that have said that, you know, there were a, a pretty large number of street checks slash carding incidents, depending on which perspective you look at, uh, a couple of years ago. It's down significantly right now. Why? Well, I think you can just look at the dynamics of, of the pressure from the public and then to what use it's uh, intended. And so, I mean, we actually welcome, in my view, the regulations on this because it tells us what we can do, what we can't do, and under what circumstances. Uh, you may be aware as well, we did training on this five years ago, and uh, we looked at the both the Constitution, what it says, but also the Supreme Court decisions that spoke to arbitrary detention, investigative detention, psychological detention. All those things, because, of course, we know that the law is stated in statute, but then, of course, it is determined by the Supreme Court as to what you can and can't do. Those provisions by the Supreme Court still exist. So you'll find that a lot of that act now is congruent with those case law decisions. Was the tra- You just mentioned the word training. Was the training previously to this for officers? This, this is how you're supposed to operate? This is what you're allowed to do? That's this correct. is as far as you can go? Yes, and... We had always make, or we had always stated that the collection of information on the basis of race or prohibited grounds is strictly prohibited. So, if it was done for that purpose, then that was prohibited. So, we came into this in terms of gathering information five years ago with that stipulation. It's not that we added it in a, in a new manner. You mentioned repercussions, uh, and again, I'm asking you to, to give me the the mindset of, of of your officers as they're out there on the street. And this reticence that I'm hearing from some of them, frankly, uh, who want to speak off the record, that I I can't do that anymore because I'm probably going to get in trouble. I'm going to be accused of doing something. Uh, What what are the implications of that if if officers are afraid to actually approach and, and do what they think is the proper procedure? So I'll tell you what the command said when this regulation came in. We embraced it and said, really what it's going to do is force our front line to articulate why they are doing what they're doing, and the law that applies to that. I see that as a tremendous thing. And I see it as part of the professionalism of policing. When I either search, stop, whatever I do, I have to know what my legal authorities are for doing that. If you don't know that, then we obviously have a gap. If you do know it, then you should be able to articulate it and provide that information, whether it's in court, because let's face it, like this is a stop, but if you have a stop that leads to an arrest, to a significant drug seizure, to firearms in a vehicle, 
to, let's say you've got a hostage in a trunk, like who knows? Um, these things have happened to us. Um, you have to know your legal authority in the first place because you could be tested before the courts, perhaps at the level, if it gets appealed, to the Supreme Court. So you better know what you're doing. It's part of the professionalism of policing. So for me, this regulation has been a good thing. It's going to hone our skills. It's going to force our people to articulate why they're doing what they're doing. Has that always been going on? I mean, did officers always uh, correctly articulate the reasoning for what they were doing at that time? Well, I mean, I'd like to think they are, but the point is um, we've all still got to learn certain things. So let's look at, um, say, firearms in a moving vehicle. Do you know the provisions of the code that allow you to search that? You're not dealing with it every day, but you better know it. So the whole point is this will hone the skills, this will provide that emphasis and increase the professionalism policing. That's why I say we welcome it because, um, again, this is just for collection of information. But as I say, if you get into a substantive criminal offense, you don't know why you, what you're doing, you can potentially lose those cases. Well, we don't want to see that. Is, is this evolving, or maybe it already has, into the situation where, where officers are, are going to have a, a set statement to make? Uh, well, what they do in the States, it's look at the Miranda rights, you know, where you have the right to remain silent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, the Miranda decision that was made in court some years ago, and they were supposed to follow that to the letter of the law. Uh, is is that where we're heading? Is that what officers are going to have to do now when they, they're, they're making a, a street check? No, I don't sense that level of complexity. And, of course, the counterpart to the Miranda rights is 10B rights under the Constitution, which we provide upon arrest to people. Uh, this, again, uh, if I'm just having a conversation, I'm not going to have to read anything to you. If I, in fact, collect your information, I'm going to have to give you a receipt. There are certain provisions where I don't have to, for example, I have a domestic call. I'm in the middle of this giving the information, and I have a domestic call or life-threatening. Then I write, got to go. Here's the call, life-threatening. Like I'll probably write it later. Go to the call. The, the Act provides for that. It provides under other circumstances where you don't have to provide that information. They're fairly limited. Um, but um, I don't see it getting that complex. I don't think it needs to. I mean, once you've arrested somebody, talking about Miranda rights, you've detained them. You've taken away their liberty then people have to know what their rights are. It's the reason we have the requirement in our law for 10B rights. What are the elements that uh, caused some consternation, uh, and this came from the Attorney General's office, uh, was, of course, that officers who are engaged in this process of of street checks and talking with people and gaining information uh, is that they have to inform the the other individual that they do have the right to walk away or to not answer questions. Uh, My understanding, Chief, is that that was always there, wasn't it? It was, and people, this is around psychological detention. If their belief was they couldn't leave, then it's expressly articulated. Again, when I'm collecting your name and personal information. That's why it's called the collection of information, the regulation, as opposed to carding or street checks. It's the collection of information. And somebody who was savvy would know that, hey, I I don't have to talk to you. I Uh, I can just walk away. There's there's people right now who know that. And you'll find with people who are experienced in the judicial system, and they have nice ways of telling us that, that they're going to be on their way and they think you should be on your way. Um, And guess what? They go on their way, you go on your way. If you have arrest authority, then you would exercise it. If you don't, then you part ways. But that, my understanding is with the new regulations now, that actually has to be articulated to the individual that's, that's, that's being talked to. Not just being talked to, when it's at the point of collecting the information. Right at the beginning? Well, if I intend to take your name, yes, I have to tell you that. If I'm just talking to you, for example, I have a crime scene, Bill, you're in the area. Uh, Sir, did you see anything relative to this crime? 
I don't have to start giving you information about you can walk away. I'm entering into an investigation. You're a potential witness. They're, the act allows me to do that without having to provide everybody. Let's say I've got 30 people at a scene, S Village. Um, I don't have to start filling out receipts to everybody on that part if I'm entering into an investigation. And again, as a witness, you can comply or not. Um, but I can take that information. I could say to you, sir, can you tell me your name? Because you said, yes, I saw that guy get punched in the face. Can I take your name? Yes, I'm Bill Kelly. Thank you very much. I don't then have to provide a receipt in that case because I'm entering into a criminal investigation. All right. Other side of the fence now. For the, the, the standpoint of the officers then, how does that stipulation, does it help or hurt them trying to do their job? Personally, I think it helps them because, again, it, it makes you think about why you're doing what you're doing and how you're doing it and the legal authorities that allow you to do your job. I would like to think that at any time when I'm asked, and that was always my um, intent when I was on the street, if you ask me, I tell you why I'm doing what I'm doing. If there was some prohibition against that, in other words, you're a domestic violence um, uh, suspect, and by disclosing what I'm doing and why, that's going to give you a particular advantage, I wouldn't do it. I'm still allowed to do that under the Act. But, you know, the whole point is you've got to know why you're doing what you're doing. Uh, by the way, I got an email the other day from somebody. We were talking about police services and uh, an unrelated topic. And I, and I mentioned to them in my response about uh, the police college in Elmer and uh, you know, where a lot of the training goes on. And they asked about follow-up courses. In other words, once you graduate from that and you become member of Hamilton Police Service, mm-hmm. for instance, yep. uh, my understanding is that doesn't mean that's the end of your training. No, in fact, uh, I've revisited uh, the Ontario Police College in Elmer a number of times. Also, the Canadian Police College. I've had the uh, you know fortunate um, opportunity to go to FBI in Quantico. But yes, we keep our people um, up to date on courses, whether it's sexual assault, whether it's frontline supervision. It could be CPIC operation. There's a whole plethora of, of courses that are available at, at the Ontario Police College. And are they mandatory? The, um, some are, depending on your job. And some are requirements under major, major case management, what's called our criminal information management program. Um, but um, it depends which occupation. Some are, some aren't. Uh, I always think it's a good idea to send people on training. And the, the beauty about OPC is they stay current. Um, so they're looking at the case law that comes out. A lot of the Mental Health Act training that we're doing now, that was going on in the college. I remember doing it as a frontline supervisor 20 years ago. Um, Ron Hoffman and... Uh, uh, a number of the instructors there have really been at the forefront of this on the mental health aspect. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.